So here we go. We are now going to delve into the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. The sin itself is only six very short psukim, and the aftermath is quite long. And our premise was that you have to really understand the aftermath. You have to really go into it and truly understand it to, I think, highlight the incredible message that the Torah is trying to teach us. So let's take a look. Here we go. Um, a really fascinating series of psukim. Please join along with me. I'm reading from the end of 32 of Breshit, of Shemot, sorry. Uh, please, I will read out loud. Feel free to follow along. And we are the last couple of psukim, specifically versus, specifically psukim numbers uh, 34 and 35. Here we go. And all of a sudden, Hashem is telling Moshe, you know, Go and you'll lead the people. El Asher Dibartilach to the place that I kind of told you about. I'm going to send an angel, a messenger after you, with you. And when I make some type of accounting, I will bring them to account for their sins. You know, maybe I won't do it now, maybe I'll do it later, but that's what the Torah says. Very odd pasuk over here. But I want to point out a few things, and you're going to have to help me out here. When you listen to the words, I want to know what you're thinking when you hear these words. But to me, when, you hear, when I hear these words, I hear words that sound very distant. Number one. Lech Nechayatam. Hashem tells Moshe, go lead the people. Not your people, not our people, not the great Am Israel or B'nai Israel, more specifically, but rather the people. Seems very, very distant. And not only that, where are they supposed to lead them to? What happened to the great promised lands? Zavat Chalavudvash, Eretz Israel, Eretz Asher, thy promise, Avrans and Yaakov. No. Language here is just the place that I kind of spoke about already. Wow, how distant. And by the way, is Hashem going to lead them? No, Hashem won't even be there. Who's going to go instead? I'm going to send an angel. An angel will go before you. And by the way, there'll come a time I'll make an accounting. And when I bring an accounting, then I'm going to account for their sins. So maybe, okay, I'm not destroying the people right away. That was the original plan. God wanted to destroy the people right away, and Moshe was able to fend it off. Moshe was somehow able to navigate all of that using his brilliance we discussed in the past. But this idea that Hashem is not going to go with the people, he's going to send an angel, and eventually there will be some reckoning, there will be some accounting for their sin. Distance, pushing off the sin into the future, and having a messenger, having an angel accompany them. Not destruction! but very far from a sense of closeness. And in response to this, or in continuation, I should say, there was a terrible plague on the people because they made the ego in conjunction with Aharon. That is the end of chapter 32. And now you'd think, remember, as God speaking to Moshe, you would think what should happen, Moshe would respond. But there's no response. Chapter 33. Now, there's a bit of a break here, right? There's a, and there's a partial stuma at the end of 35. So there's a break in time, in thought, in space. But nonetheless, the, the dialogue of Moshe responding is absent. So here's the second conversation that God has with Moshe. And at first glance, maybe you'd assume that it's redundant. 
a little bit repetitive, but let's read it together carefully, and we're going to notice a difference. God tells Moshe, ascend. Get out. Go. And instead, I want to get out. That you and the people, sounds very similar, that you brought out from the land of Egypt. But here we go. It seems like Moshe, guess what? He refuses to leave God's presence. God has to say to him, okay, we're done. You know, in 34, the end of chapter 32, Hashem says to Moshe, please go down, you're done, you're finished. And guess what? Moshe does not budge. He's Because he knows if he budges, he acquiesces to God. Before, if he would have gone down, perhaps the Jewish people would have been destroyed. Perhaps if he goes down, that means he agrees. It means he says, okay. And Moshe refuses to agree. He refuses to shake God's, so to speak, hand and agree to these conditions. He just stays there. You know, they say in fundraising, when you often give a pitch, you ask somebody, you know, would you consider a $25,000 donation, $100,000 donation to support this incredible program? It's going to have a tremendous impact on our community. What you do is you stop and you wait. And whoever speaks first loses. In many ways, that's what happens here. Moshe is silent. Moshe doesn't respond. And therefore, God speaks. And in this second time, we see that God is not as distant as he was before. Yes, it's true. He says, go down. And he mentions the nation. But at least he says, the nation that you took out of Egypt. He brought out of Egypt, and when he says where they're going, in contrast to that first time, he identifies it as the land that I promised. That I promise, I swore to the Avo, saying to your offspring, at least there's a sense of closeness, at least there's a sense of mentioning our forefathers that was absent that first time. And then here's that second part. And I will send an angel in front of you. At the end of that first time, all it said was, you know, I'm going to send a malach to go before you. Maybe it's to help you with the battles. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe it's the divine protection. Maybe it's the scout. Maybe it's, I have no idea. Surveillance. Or just to hang out with you. Regardless, the second time we see that this malach will have a function. And that Vegerash, listen to these words, Vegerash T, God will be involved. Maybe through this angel, or the, I'm not so sure. But God says, Vegerash T, and I will send away the Kananiyah meaning I will get involved myself. I'm not going to be as distant. And listen to this. Now, what, I will help chase them out, or I'll do it through my malach. It's unclear. But at least he says he identifies the land not just as the land of the forefathers, but to the land of flowing with milk and honey. At least God identifies this as Eretz Israel. And what's so beautiful about Eretz Vash? It's a land of beauty, of affluence, of milk, of flowing, right? Of honey. Well, I don't know, date honey or bee honey, dvash, right? Amazing, dvash. Or this chalav, what's this chalav referring to? Maybe it's referring to chalav like um, from milk. 
maybe there are those who even want to argue that it's referring to um, not necessarily from a cow, maybe it's referring to from an almond, from, you know, um, milk, from almond milk. Again, the sense of beauty, the sense of richness, the sense of the vast lands of Adchalav, overflowing of bounty and blessing. But it's curtailed. I will not be there myself. I will not be able to join in your midst. Why? Because you guys are stubborn. And if I'm in your midst, I can send an angel. And maybe my angel will do things for you and will protect and will fight wars. Maybe that's what this was referring to. I can't be there myself. I'm in your midst. I'm going to end up destroying you. At least I realize that there are limitations. But at least you'll go to the promised land. That is stage two. What do B'nai Israel do in response to this second statement? Verse number four. The B'nai Israel hear this thing. What is this thing? that God will not go to their midst. And look at their response. They mourn. And what happens? They hear this, they go into mourning, and they no longer have this, the English here says, and none put on his finery. That they do not put these, they do not put on these jewelry, they do not put on these items. Wow. I have to come back to that maybe in a little bit. Look what happens. God tells Moshe, you are a stubborn, they are a stubborn people. They are stiff-necked. They are stubborn. And if I were to come into them for a minute, if I had to be in their presence, I will have to, unfortunately, destroy them. I have to destroy them. I will just, if I was going to your midst for a minute, I'll destroy you. Now leave off your finery. And I will consider what to do to you. And B'nai Yisrael do that. And they actually take off their finery, their jewelry from Chorev. What is going on over here? Very odd series of psuki, and those are the psuki I would like to focus on today over the next few minutes. I think what is happening here is that God once again has a third proposal. And his third proposal is a lot different than his first two. You see, his third proposal, his first two proposals, he basically says, I'm not coming with the people. I'll destroy them. It'll be bad news for the Jews. I cannot go with them. But here's what's interesting. If you take a look at verse number five at Pasuk Hay, Hashem tells Moshe, they're stubborn, you know, but if you remove your jewelry, you remove your finery, quote, I'll consider what to do to you. What do you mean? Does that mean God will consider joining the people? Maybe. Maybe this means that God will consider joining B'nai Yisrael. Wow. That's revolutionary. Because before, it seemed like he was dead set on not joining B'nai Yisrael. But now that Hashem is willing to entertain this idea that he will join the Jewish people, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, is a game changer. It's revolutionary. He's willing to go back on what he said before. But what had changed? Why all of a sudden is God willing to consider returning back to the people? 
it seems to be that they are doing it because they're mourning. Vayitabalu. What do they hear? Why do they mourn? And what's with this jewelry? My friends, I think this is critical. Let me suggest to you that this idea why the Jewish people mourn and take off their jewelry from Chorev in response to hearing what God says gives us tremendous insight. The fact that B'nai Israel are willing to be so upset and distraught that God will not join them teaches a very important lesson. The B'nai Israel are truly shattered, are crushed, are disheartened by the fact that God will not accompany them. To go to the land of Israel, they're going to get there. Nice. But without God only having a malach, it's as if they're looking at something just totally unfulfilling and unredemptive. Getting to the land of Israel while perhaps nice and wonderful fulfillment of what he told our Rezach and Yaakov, beautiful. But it's not B'nai Israel interested in. They want that relationship with the Almighty. They want that relationship with God. And if God himself is not going to accompany them, what is the point? And that is why they mourn and they cry. And what does this jewelry our rabbis tell us? You know what this jewelry is? Says the Medrash. B'nai Yisrael said, Nasev and Ishma. Angels came and adorned them with jewelry. Crowns for Nasev and Ishma. And are those crowns from Chorev that they in fact remove when they hear that God will not accompany them. What's going on? I heard a great insight from Rabbi David Foreman. He said his following. When B'nai Yisrael say Nasev and Ishma, you know what that means? Nasev and Ishma means they're interested in a relationship. You see, if you love somebody, you know what you do when you love somebody? Anything they ask of you, you always say yes. By the way, it's a good message. They ask you to do something. You don't say, well, you know, maybe. No. I want to engage in a relationship. The response is, I will do. I will listen. Whatever you tell me. What about, and I'll hear the details later. Details don't matter in a relationship. You do things that are almost irrational. It's not tit for tat. You don't do tit for tat when you love somebody. That's what you do in a business transaction. When you love somebody, when you have a real deep relation with somebody, it's not tit for tat. It's not my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. It's always my turn or it's always your turn. We don't do one and one. When you have a relationship with somebody, you always want to help. and You always want to do something for the other person. And therefore... The fact that B'nai Yisrael said Nasev and Ishma means they are willing to engage in a deep relationship with God, even without hearing all of the intricate details. But that's fine. That's beautiful. That's wondrous. So the angels themselves come and give them crowns. Angels give them crowns because they're willing to enter in that relationship. When B'nai Yisrael hear the relationship is being severed, that God will not be able to be with the people, they want to remove those crowns of glory. They want to strip themselves of those jewelry that represented the relationship. B'nai Yisrael trusted in God. If God was interested, B'nai Yisrael said, we are in, Nasev and Ishma, we are in. And that trust, unfortunately, was broken. Unfortunately, it was severed. And therefore, what do B'nai Israel do? They mourn, they cry. There's a lot of connections between marriage, seven days of ceremony, Shev Brachot, and seven days of Shiva. The Gemara and Ketubot, in fact, even draws a relationship between these two. There's special benching that we recite at a wedding, and although it's not nearly as popular, there's also special benching that we recite in, at, at, um, at, a, at a house of mourning.
Because in many ways, these two experiences mirror each other. They mirror each other. Why? Why do you mourn for someone when they pass away? You mourn because you lose a relationship with them. It's not that they're just dead. What does it mean that they're dead? It means that, you, that, that relationship that you had is severed. It's, you could only describe things in the past. You can't have a relationship with someone who is dead. It's over. Yeah, you have memories. Of course you can. You can reflect on what was, but that relationship, sadly, is over. It's been severed. You want to be with such a person. You know, when someone says to you, you know, uh, they're not suffering. Okay, they're not suffering, but you don't have that relationship with them anymore. That's so tragic. That is, in fact, so sad. And then maybe that's what this ego was. What was this ego? This ego, as we said many weeks ago, was Benishro didn't want that direct relationship with God. They wanted a masicha. They wanted an ego masicha. They wanted a mask. Benishro were not interested in having that relationship with God. They wore a mask. And when Benishro realized and they heard the words that the relationship with God was going to be over, they cried, they cried and they mourned and they removed their jewelry. The jewelry that represented that closeness in their relationship. And that is, I believe, what the Torah is telling us. That it's not about entering the land. Yes, they were told they're going to enter the land. Entering the land without a relationship with God, they were simply were not interested in. And therefore, B'nai Israel went into mourning. They wanted to have that relationship. And now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense exactly what is going on. These were gifts of trust. These were gifts of relationship. And that's why B'nai Israel, who broke the trust and severed the relationship, removed them. And so I think, you know, and that's in many ways when B'nai Israel realize, and I think that perhaps is the difference between the second speech by God and the third. The second speech by God and the third, why does God begin to entertain the concept of maybe going with them in the third, by the time he speaks the third time? Because after the second time, he sees B'nai Israel mourning, removing the jewelry. They recognize the sin. They realize that the relationship has been severed. It's at that point in time they can begin to rehabilitate. They can begin to recognize that they were truly betrayed God. They don't try to find excuses. They mourn and they cry the severed relationship. And in response to that, and only response to that, is God willing to say, you know what? You realize you severed that relationship? I'm willing to reconsider rectification. I'm willing to consider having that relationship become mended and once again to return to the way it was. They didn't apologize. They didn't need to apologize. They're not there yet. Right now, they have to realize what they did was so wrong because he destroyed that sense of closeness. They destroyed that relationship. So God says, you need to understand. You're stiff-necked. It's dangerous. But I'm willing to open the door to perhaps returning again. And that, I think, is what's happening in these psukim. The next series of psukim deal with Moshe and Moshe's relationship with God. And that, too, is going to have to somehow be rectified and tweaked and rehabilitated. But that, my friends, we're going to leave for another time for next week. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining.